Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Don't you love the reading of the word? Wow. Thanks, Emmanuel. Thank you. Hey, let's give it up for the uh, worship team, too. What a great worship time. You guys just come and enjoy it. They work at it. What's that? Emanuela's birthday today. Happy birthday, Emanuela. She's the one on the keyboard right there. Praise God. You know, I think it'd be good to give. We just need to be more thankful. I I agree with Kelly. Uh, We have people all over this church serving right now. Uh, We have people in the studio, without the studio, and without our cameras, without our soundboard, without our lights, we're a mess. And so, Thaisa, you're leaving. Oh, who's, Zuriel's taking your place? Okay. And then Cody, bless you. Is it Nyleen in the, in the lights back there? Thank you. Kanan on the sound. And in the, in the studio, we have, I think, Chance and uh, Matt Bowie and others. Just can you give, give them a big hand? Thank them. You just take everything for granted. The words come up on the screen. You just take it for granted. And uh, Matt, you're one of my favorites. He's the guy that puts the words up today, so... Did a great job. And so I want to thank you. And online, we're glad you're here today. And I trust that uh, God will bless you in amazing ways. Um, also, um, my fa- Connie and I want to thank you for your love, support during this time as Connie lost her mother last week. <clears throat> we want to thank you for love, support, and food too. We like the food. So it's it's been very helpful, very kind and loving of you and thank you for your prayers. Uh, it's, it's always, you know, bittersweet when people leave the earth, but they go to a wonderful place. And, uh, so we thank God for that. Also, um, do you know, two weeks from today, Easter, two weeks from today is Easter. We're going to have nine, 11 and one services. Do you remember last Sunday's message? You're not truly following Jesus unless what? You're inviting people and you say, come and see, come and see. So I want you to do this. I want you all week long. I want you to grab these touch cards. They're out in the foyer at the, we'll have them at the door. We'll have them out, out there at the uh, connect counter. Take these and hand them out. I want to see cards everywhere this week. I want to go into restaurants. There's a card. I want to go to gas station. There's a card. You know, let's, let's start inviting people. People will come to Easter. They just will. They just, they, they realize they got to do, do something, you know, for Easter. So invite them to Easter. And here's my recommendation. Come to one service and serve and invite somebody to come with you another service. 
Okay, we have three services, 9, 11, and 1. So do that. We're going to believe for a, it's a powerful time. Uh, Easter and Christmas Eve are my favorite. So this is, this is a great spring opportunity. So take these. They will, they will be at the door when you leave. Father, we're believing today for an anointing upon this word. We ask that you would change our minds, our thoughts, our understanding as we listen to what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I guarantee you, you probably have never heard a sermon like this. I've never preached one out of this. So I want to talk to you about some things. First of all, I want to address things. We're living in a really troubled time. Never before have we seen such anguish, and I'm not talking about America, I'm talking about the world. Anguish and all kinds of things. Did you notice sin is getting worse and worse? Why is that? Connie and I were talking about this week. Why is that? Because sin is insatiable. It's never satisfied. You have to go deeper and more depraved because it doesn't satisfy. And that's what's happening. You see, you were made in the image of God and you will only be satisfied with God's image when it's imprinted upon your soul. But without God, you will go to the depths of depravity. And that's what's happening. That's why we're seeing all this manifested evil. And notice it hits the children worse. Pedophilia, trafficking, Gender confusion. On and on the list goes. I rebuke you, Disney, for what you did this week. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. That's, that's a kingdom of God statement. If you don't know what I'm talking about, research it. But we have to understand, God has, it, the problem is not Disney. The problem is not the world. The problem is the church. Because we have not elevated the kingdom of God to its proper position and place. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I'm going to forgive your sin and heal your land. So we've got we to gotta realize it's us in the need of prayer, in the need of God. But I'm telling you, the world is after the seed. They want to destroy it because Satan has also read scripture. And he realizes the prophetic word is the seed will crush his head. So he's trying to get rid of the seed. That's biblical. It happened all through the Bible and it's even happening now. That's why you have this out and out, uh, uh, just a costing of our children through abortion. If they don't get you before birth, they try to get you after. But I'm going to talk about something good today. Because you see, we see all kinds of substitutes for for God. We see, and I even saw this when I was a kid, we see all kinds of Superman stuff, Batman stuff, superpowers, Spider-Man, Iron Man. Notice they all have man in it. But I'm going to talk to you today about the real, real superpower. It's called the God-Man. And I'm going to talk about the God-Man in the garden. You see, into our world enters the God-man and he comes as a liberator, a rescuer. A lot of us say, well, where did, where did God get his power? Where did Jesus assume the power? We always say, well, it had to be on the cross. And you're right, partly. 
But can I say it actually started in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. My message today is the God-man in the garden. Doing that which is easiest is often to the neglect of doing what is best. God's will is rarely easy, but it is always best. God loves to take us off the road of least resistance and onto the road of much resistance. Because it's there that we really find who we are and who we are to be and what's really up in the world. And so what happens is, most of all, we find on, that, on the road of much resistance just how desperately we need the God-man. Now what has just happened, as we listen to D read this scripture in Mark 14, we have to understand what just happened before this. Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples, eating the Passover lamb and teaching him that he is teaching all of them that he is the lamb of God who will be slain for the sins of the world. Just got done with that. They leave the upper room singing hymns of worship to God. Sounds real romantic and real good, doesn't it? But everything is about to change. Life is about ready to get very, very hard and very, very difficult. Jesus leads his disciples out of the upper room singing, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to do some praying. John 18, 2 says that Jesus came to this garden quite often with his disciples. It was a place of rest on the outskirts of town, away from all the masses of people. Gethsemane means olive press. Olives were a crop, as you know, that had to be pressed and crushed in order to get the precious oil out of them. How appropriate that Jesus is in this garden. The Son of God would soon be pressed by his enemies and crushed by the cross so that his precious blood would be poured out to cover our sins. But before he could surrender his body on the cross, he must surrender his will to the Father. I want to suggest to you that Jesus' night in Gethsemane might have been more difficult than his day on the cross. I don't want to diminish the cross. That's not my point. And I'm not trying to. But I want to heighten our appreciation of this moment in the garden. We're going to see his victory over Satan was actually won in the garden. And it was finished on the cross. Jesus in his humanity is excruciatingly tempted to take the road of least resistance in the garden. His human nature wants to go another route. He wants to find an easier way. Remember, he is all God, yet he is all man. Remember what I said, God's will is rarely easy, but it's always best. So I want us today, first of all, to recognize the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. Verses 34 and 35 says, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. It says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he told his disciples, stay here and keep watch. Matthew 26, 37 says, and he became anguished 
and distressed. Luke twenty two forty four says, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's like the gospel writers are, are desperately trying to find the words to describe what Jesus is feeling and thinking and fighting and experiencing, but they don't have a sufficient vocabulary to fully convey it or describe it. These words describe what Jesus' emotions are, and they are some of the strongest terms in the Greek language. They are distressed, troubled, overwhelmed, sorrowful, anguished, agonized. If I could just break them down in the Greek, it would, just, it would cause you to be overwhelmed. Luke even says that I just read that his sweat falls to the ground like vast drops of blood. This is a condition, and there is an actual condition called hemosiderosis. And it's where blood comes out, where a person is under such physical, mental, and emotional pressure and distress that the capillaries in their face gorge with blood and then they burst. The blood begins to seep out of their sweat glands. This is the pinnacle point of human stress. And this is what Jesus experienced. But let me say this. This isn't just just deep sadness and grief. It was deathly fear. You, you ask the question, is there anything that could scare Jesus? Apparently so. Verse 34 says distressed. This word distressed means this. It means to be in the grip of shuddering horror and absolute terror. Scholars say it indicates the kind of feeling you'd have if you came home one evening and found your family murdered and mutilated. Jesus leaves the upper room singing in holy worship to his father. And then he enters the garden in holy terror. Jesus was beside himself in fear and nearly scared to death. Why? So that you don't have to be. Jesus represents you and me just as much in the garden of Gethsemane as he does on the cross. This is your substitute. This is your stand-in. This is your Savior. He is going through this even in the garden so that you don't have to. The innocent lamb. Now, you've got to picture this. The innocent lamb is trembling in the hands of his sacrificer who will slay him and apply his blood to cover the sins of the people. Have you ever held a trembling animal? That's what was happening. He was trembling in the hands of the Father. So the question is, why is Jesus so terrified? Why is the fear and dread so strong that Jesus thinks he could die before he even got to the cross? Let me tell you what what this is not. It's not a fear of death. Jesus wasn't afraid to physically die. He says, I, he said this, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus was not physically afraid to die. And it's not the shame of death. Jesus is going to die a very public, a very repulsive, a very shameful death. He will be mocked, insulted, abandoned, brutalized, and laid bare before a watching world. Hebrews 12, 2 says he endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised it, but he didn't fear it. And it's not the pain of death itself. 
I don't want to minimize what he went through on the cross. I mean, I could, I could cause you to shake today if I describe what the cross was because it was excruciating. But Jesus wasn't on his face before the father saying, God, I cannot bear the kind of physical pain that I'm about to face. That's not why he was on his face. Christians for the last 2,000 years have endured torturous and physical, painful deaths for the name of Jesus Christ. I'll give you one. In the mid-centuries, Polycarp was tied to a pole, covered with pitch and tar, and about to be burned to death for following Christ. The emperor shouted, Polycarp, blaspheme Christ or die. Polycarp said, how can I forsake my king who has saved me? Light the fire. It wasn't the pain of death that horrified Jesus. So what was it? What is it that he sees in the garden that has him in such agony, such terror, anguish, and distress? The words that he says in the garden gives it away. What is he afraid of? He sees what's in the cup. He sees what's in the cup. Jesus prays, Father, let this cup be taken from me. It's what's in the cup. In the cup is all of the sin all of all the world for all of time. In that cup is the full wrath, hatred, judgment, and punishment of a holy, righteous God for all of that sin. Jesus, the spotless, innocent Lamb of God, sees himself as the sin bearer for man and being the sole object on which the Father pours out all of his perfect wrath and righteous hatred for sin. He sees that. And don't miss this. For every sinner for whom he died, he drank from that cup each sinner's eternal wrath. For the millions of sinners to whom he died, he took a million eternities full of God's wrath upon himself. That's why the struggle was so immense. That's why the temptation to escape it is so enticing. In his humanity, he wanted to escape. Jesus is being tempted by Satan to recoil from the cup and refuse to drink the cup. He's being tempted to not do what he came to do. Satan is tempting him not to go to the cross, not to be the sacrificial lamb, not to be our substitute. Satan wants Jesus to cry out to Father God and say, Father, I can't do it. I won't do it. And if if Satan succeeds, then hell is the only place every person will ever live forever. Heaven will be empty. God's word will be untrue. The promise of salvation completely shattered. And Satan will have won in this garden, in this garden, with Jesus, just like he did in the first garden with Adam and Eve. A sinless, innocent lamb is uncontrollably trembling in terror in the hands of his judge and sacrificer as he's about to drink the full cup of God's damnation 
for all of the evil of all mankind for all generations. His agony is incredible. But let's not just remember his agony. Let's remember the humanity of Jesus in the garden. Verse 35 and 36 says, Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And those, I'm, I'm giving you theology here today in a way I hope you accept and receive. This is good stuff. And those two things, 100% human, 100% uh, God, those two things were always separated, never mixed. He wasn't a deified human or a humanized God. Jesus didn't use his God powers to minimize his human emotions or experiences. Philippians 2.6 says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let me diverge for a minute. I just read you a scripture that if people who are leaders would take, our world would be completely different. The problem with leaders is they're not servant leaders. They're ruler leaders. They're authoritarian leaders. And we must be very careful as believers. I'll, I'll give you an example. God will come into you. He will give you grace and he will give you empowerment and you do something. You lay hands on somebody. They, they get well or you do that. You pray for somebody and something great happens and you feel energized. You feel strength. But at that moment, that's the very moment that you must disavow humanity and ask God for his grace. You must humble yourself as a servant and say, that is not me. That is God. That's the problem in our world. That's the problem with Many pastors, they take on, they read the headlines. It's not about you. It's not about me. We need to have servant leaders. We need to have servant leaders in Washington, D.C. That's the problem. I've been talking to them all these years. You need to be a servant. You need to humble yourself. We all need this in every capacity of our lives. No matter what you lead, you need to be a servant in your business. You need to be a servant in your family. You need everything you do is a servant. Jesus came. What did he do? He came to bring the towel of servanthood. That's how he got empowered. He was going to be the greatest of all, must become the servant of all. Wow. I'm sorry I diverted. I just, you got to catch this. If I could say anything to the politicians today, this is what I'd tell them. He didn't use his, his God powers. You see, remember, he's the God man. Not Superman, he's the God man. He didn't use his God powers to his own advantage. He didn't use his God powers to shorten, minimize, or override his human pain. And we have to understand what that really meant. While none of us will ever experience anything close to what Jesus experienced in Gethsemane, this scripture and story is meant to help encourage and strengthen everyone who faces moments that seem too big 
and too tempting, that your temptations seem too strong. What does Jesus do when he faces something that seems to be too much for him to bear? This is what he does, which I'm going to tell you now. He does this. He's an example for us. In the time of great distress and temptation, this is what Jesus did. Number one, he prayed. And he prayed specifically. Verse 35 says, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He falls on his face and cries out to his father. Let me say, his praying wasn't necessarily pretty or fancy or articulate. Hebrews 5, 7 says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. In other words, let me say this. Jesus went full bore ugly in the garden. He cried in the garden. It's not a whimper. It's not a whisper. He prays without cries and, and tears. He says, I'm the father. Meaning Papa, Daddy. It's a term of familiarity and affection and intimacy. He says, Daddy, 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 rescue me. That was his humanity. And he really felt it. And what Jesus prays is unbelievable in some ways. He prays the Father takes the cup away. That this hour might pass from him. He's basically saying this. If there's another way, Father, to save sinners, if there's another way to clean people and reconcile them to you without me going to the cross, let's do that, Father. I don't want to do this. If it's possible, don't let me drink this. Jesus prays, in other words, for an alternative to the cross. He prays for a change of plans. In his humanity, Jesus reveals he is generally tempted to abandon the role of sin bearer. Wow. Did you ever hear that before? Remember, temptation is not sin. Submitting and yielding to temptation is sin. So in the midst of his temptation to reject the cup and escape the cross, he prays earnestly, passionately. That's why he tells the disciples to watch and pray as well. He says, watch out, watch and pray. What are they watching and praying for? Satan. You see, Satan was in the garden. He was there tempting, just like he was in the garden with Adam and Eve. He says, be alert. Satan is close and on the prowl. Pray. That's what he was saying. So let me say it this way. The way to be spiritually alert is to pray. The way to fight Satan is to talk to God. The way to overcome temptation is to lay it out before God in prayer. Prayer is not a way to get everything you want from God, but a way to get what you need from God. Namely, we need grace, protection, direction. Prayer is a way to access, access God's grace. Prayer is means of God's presence and his protection. Prayer is the way God leads us, strengthens us, guides us. Prayerlessness leads to carelessness, which leads to sinfulness. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus prays for three hours and he has the strength to go to the cross. The disciples sleep for three hours and they all abandon Jesus in his hour of need. Let's not miss this. 
Jesus prays this prayer. Father, if there's any other way to save sinners and forgive sin than the cross, let's do that. But the Father said, no, there is no other possible way. The second thing he did, he prayed and then he believed. He believed with all of his heart. He prays specifically, but he believes wholeheartedly in his Father. He says, everything is possible for you, Father. He prayed with complete faith in the Father. Scripture constantly calls us to pray with faith, pray without doubt, pray to believe. He believes in his Father. He loves him. He knows him. He sees him. He cares about him. And he believes that the Father is so wise and so loving that there's any other way to change the plan to save sinners. That's what would happen. Then the Father could and would do it. He has full faith and trust in his Heavenly Father as he prays. So his faith, his trust is wholeheartedly. The third thing he, we notice in this, in this story is he surrenders. He surrenders unreservedly. Jesus doesn't demand anything of his father. He, command, he did not command him to do something for him. He surrenders the ultimate decision to his father. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus allows his will to be crushed so that the father's will could be done. Now, can I just tell you, Jesus could have demanded his way and his will to be done. In fact, if you, if you read this story, because when the soldiers and religious leaders came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a knife, uh, as Dee read this today, Peter pulls out a knife or a sword and slices off the ear of a guy. Jesus miraculously picks up the ear and puts the ear back on and says, Peter, put that away before you hurt yourself. Don't you know I could call down 12 legions of angels to save me? Do you know how many angels that is? That's, that's 72,000 angels. In Isaiah 37, we see what one angel can do. Kills 185,000 people. Imagine what 12 legions could do. But we have to understand, Jesus doesn't allow his humanity to tap into his divinity to escape the situation. Even if there's another way to save the world, he refuses to allow his divinity to give him an advantage in his humanity. He yields and surrenders to God. And this one gets me, number four. This is what he's doing in the garden. He's giving us an example of what we're to do when we are in just terrible circumstances. He cares about others. He cares selflessly. Here Jesus is overwhelmed with grief, fear, stress in unbelievable proportions. Yet it's at this, in the middle of all of this, he remembers his disciples. He stops and he goes to them and finds them sleeping. Verse 37, 38. Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. He says, Simon, are you sleeping? Now, this is interesting. You have to understand every word of God in the word in scriptures is inspired. The word Simon, this is the, this is the only time in scripture after Jesus changed 
Peter's name from Simon to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. This is the only time he refers to him as Simon. You see, Simon means a reed blown by the wind. Peter means a rock, stable, secure. What happened? He called him Simon because he's acting like his old self. That must have really stung Peter. This is like when your mom calls out your name, your full name, Kenneth Galen Wild. I don't know if you had that. I did. You know you're in trouble when the whole name is said. It's serious. Simon, he said, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Basically, he's saying, I know you have good intentions, but without God's power and presence, access through prayer, you'll fail. Good intentions aren't good enough. He's basically saying, pray, guys, pray. That's the only way you access strength to get through it. In the middle, now think about this, in the middle of his most intense agony that he had on earth outside of the cross, he shows his most gracious concern. Three times he stops praying and he goes back to check on his disciples to awaken them, guide them, protect them. Now that's the kind of a high priest I want. A sympathetic, merciful, compassionate high priest who in the middle of a cosmic supernatural struggle of epic proportions stops his prayer and goes out because he's concerned about the spiritual vulnerability of his friends. That's our God. That's our high priest. That's our God, man. Lastly, I think we need to rejoice in the victory of Jesus in Gethsemane. Verse 41 through 42 says, Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus gets his answer from the Father in the garden. Jesus says, Enough. It can also be translated, it is settled. Basically, what he, he got up. He said, my father and I have been talking. It's settled. There's no question what, what's next. And the father says, son, there's no other way. You must drink the cup. The cup of suffering and wrath is now firmly in his hands. And he is not trembling anymore. This is fascinating. He's not trembling anymore. He stands with bloody sweat coursing down his face. And he says, rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus is no longer shrinking back in fear. He's moving forward in courage. He's not running from it. He's moving toward it. Through prayer, he has been strengthened by the Father, and he has now been victorious over Satan. He says, basically, it is settled. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. Jesus took the cup in both hands, and he drank damnation dry. It's interesting to me that the two major spiritual battles fought on planet Earth in two different places were in two different gardens. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. 
What Adam did in the garden ruined us. What Jesus did in the second garden rescued us. In the first garden, Adam said, not your will, but my will be done. And all creation plunged into sin. But in the second garden, Adam said, not my will. This is the last Adam. Said, not my will, but your will be done. And salvation and restoration of all creation begins. That's why Chris keeps saying it's a brand new day. So as I close here, let's, I gave you some points to do when you're in the midst of terrible temptation. Let's do these two things too. I think we need to stand amazed at his love for us in his darkest hour. I, I, I just think we need to reflect on this. If you've never believed the gospel completely, repented of your sins, welcome Christ into your life, right now you should do that. When you see and hear what Christ did and what he went through for you to be saved, look at the Lord's love for you. We need to repent and respond to him. I think we need to respond and worship and obedience to God. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross for a future joy, for a joy beyond the cross. Let me ask you this question. What would Jesus have on this side of the cross that he didn't have on that side? The approval of God? No, he had the approval of God on both sides. How about being king of the universe? No, he was king on both sides. What is the one thing he would have after the cross that he didn't have before? You and I. Only thing. Boy, you got a seal of that. Not only do we stand amazed, I think we need to learn to trust in his love for us in our darkest hour. We have dark hours. I mean, we do. We all do. We've just, Connie and I have gone through some of our darkest hours the last few months. I'm telling you, his love is still real. It's meaningful. It's tangible. John Owen said this, a historian. He said, in light of the cross, the greatest unkindness you could do to God is to doubt his love for you. What more could he do for you? What more could he give you? In what greater way could he prove he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and he will never give up on you? If Jesus didn't abandon you when he was having the life squeezed out of him in Gethsemane, you could be assured he won't leave you when it feels like life is being squeezed out of you. So if you're struggling this morning, spiritually, relationally, physically, run to Jesus. Start praying. Start surrendering. Start trusting. Put all your faith, all your hope, all your trust in him. Starts now. As I close, someone wrapped up the 14th chapter of Mark like this. They said, each of us must decide whether we will go through life pretending like Judas, fighting like Peter, or yielding to God's will like Jesus. 
So how are you going to choose to respond? Will it be the kiss of Judas, the sword of Peter, or the cup of Jesus? Would you bow your heads? be done but your will we cry out even as Jesus cried out Abba Father with every head bowed I want to ask this question the most important question in eternity are you right with God has the God man come into your life and give you his grace that you may live your life victoriously are you living your life for God or are you living your life for you Today, you can assure yourself that Jesus is for you by simply submitting to him, saying, Lord, come into my life. I surrender to you. If you want to do that or if you need to do that, I want to ask you right now, are you completely in the camp of the God-man? If you're not, I want to pray for you. If you're not and you want to be today, at the count of, on the count of three, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. It's all I want to do. One, two, three, just lift your hands. I want to be in the camp of the God man. Just lift your hand. I see one. I see two. Anybody else? Three. Four. Five. Any more? Just lift your hand right now. Say, I want, I see six. I see seven. In Jesus' name. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Church, say this prayer with me. As, as, as well as those who raised your hands, say it with me vehemently. Dear Father, I give you my life. Come into my heart. Cleanse me by the blood of the Lamb. I ask the God-man to come into my life. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that you're now my Lord and my Savior. I commit my life completely to you. Make me a brand new person. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a hand. Thank him today. Praise God. Can we do this? Put your hand in your heart. I think every one of us could feel the emotion of Jesus today. I think we need to be more like Jesus. We need to understand what he went through just for you. Father, I pray that there would be a new revelation today, a new understanding. You just didn't go to the cross. We simply, we talk about the cross so frivolously. We talk about things that you went through so frivolously. Lord, I pray that you put upon our hearts the reality of what it means to be loved by you, what it means to be saved and rescued by you what it means to come out of the darkness into light by you. I pray, Lord, that you would just infuse our hearts with a new revelation, a new understanding, and a new regeneration of God's word and heaven's promise and mission. Fill our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God.
Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.